we're going to be talking about the Cold War, how it started, uh, how it developed, not how it ended, however, that's for another class. Now, in 1945, having won the greatest war in human history, World War II, the American people received some disconcerting news from their leaders. They were told they would now have to fight another war. Not against fascism and Nazism this time, but against communism. This war, moreover, would be, uh, moreover, would be different from any war the American people had fought in the past. It would sometimes involve military force, like the wars they were used to fighting, uh, and like the war they had just fought. But not always. Sometimes this new kind of war would be fought with words, with ideological arguments, with political and diplomatic tactics, and with money. And even when this new war was fought militarily, the war would not always resemble a conventional war, because it would be sometimes fought in a limited fashion, without the commitment of all of America's resources, and without the traditional aim of most wars, which is unconditional surrender, which is what, is what had happened at the end of World War II. Here, in this new war, sometimes stalemate, the preservation of the status quo, would be the goal. And, again, like most wars they were used to fighting, Americans, when they fought, would sometimes fight alongside smaller nations, weaker nations, which, although they were smaller and weaker, would largely dictate the kind of assistance the United States would give. In other words, it would not be wholly America's war. And what's more, the people of those smaller nations might not themselves be all that much interested in fighting the war. But the U.S. would have to fight on anyway, even so, whether it was wanted or not. And finally, perhaps most disconcerting of all to the American people, they were told, in effect, that this new war would not, like the ones they were used to fighting, have a reasonably finite length. In other words, for the United States, the uh, uh, World War II lasted maybe three and a half years. There was no way, however, of telling how long this new war would last, perhaps 40 or 50 years, perhaps a century. This new war was to be, as one American leader put it, a long twilight struggle with no clear-cut winner or loser. In fact, a series of such struggles on many fronts and in many venues taking place over an indeterminate period of time and without even the guarantee of ultimate victory. Now, this new war that the American people were told about in 1945, and in keeping with its ambiguous nature, they were not even told about it directly in the manner of officially declaring war. This new war was, of course, what we have come to know as the Cold War, which, true to the warnings of American policymakers, lasted almost half a century, involved battles on political, cultural, and economic fronts, as well as military ones, taxed the resources, the patience, and the will of the American people almost to the breaking point, and whose ending, even as an ostensible American victory, was nonetheless filled with ambiguity and paradox.
Now today we'll talk about the origins of that Cold War, which those who grew up with it in my generation assumed would last forever. I still haven't completely come to grips with its ending seemingly out of nowhere in 1989 and 1990. Uh, uh, in 1990, I was in graduate school and uh, was actually asked to write a paper about the post-Cold War world. And I remember starting uh, the paper off with the sentence, they say the Cold War is over. I don't believe them. Which gives you an indication of at least where I was. I just couldn't believe that the Cold War was over. Today we'll focus on the crucial period between 1945 and 1953 when the policies, the rhetoric, and the attitudes of the Cold War were established on both sides of the ideological divide. In addition to talking about how the Cold War affected American society at home, its politics, its culture, even its economy. Now, the first question that any historian asks about the Cold War is usually whose fault was it? This essentially has been the approach of historians to the Cold War for the last 50 years. And, of course, there have been major disagreements among historians about this issue, not surprisingly, since it is such an ideologically charged issue. Now, many historians on the left, and I think it's fair to say that most historians are on the left, tend to blame the United States for the start of the Cold War. They argue that the Soviet Union, a nation that had been invaded over and over throughout its history, and one that had suffered immense, almost unfathomable losses, about 20 million killed, if you include civilians, at the hands of the Germans during World War II, is fresh in their minds, that the Soviet Union needed, just as the United States did, a sphere of influence, a buffer zone uh, of sorts, that would prevent uh, future invasions and in ensure its security. And to these historians, the Eastern European nations of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, and Bulgaria, uh, in other words, the nations along the Soviet Union's western uh, border, were such a buffer zone to which it was entitled. And in the view of these historians, America's failure to realize this and accept this legitimate concern and demand. Uh, and Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, certainly did not accept the Soviet domination of these Eastern European nations, was responsible for unnecessarily antagonizing the Soviet Union and causing the start of the Cold War. In other words, America's failure to recognize the Soviet Union's legitimate security needs needs which had much less to do with uh, communist ideology than they did with defending itself, just as any nation would, were, in these historians' view, responsible for the start of the Cold War. For other, less numerous, and more conservative historians, however, the shoe is on the other foot. For them, Soviet duplicity and militarism and expansionism, which in many ways made it the left-wing analogy to Nazi Germany, they were the cause of the Cold War. Now, this view, much more so than those of left-wing historians, emphasizes ideology. The Marxist ideology of ongoing class war between communism and capitalism that could only end with the worldwide triumph of Marxism, or so the Soviet Union ideology stated. For more conservative historians, this imperative of the Soviet Union towards constant conflict with capitalism and with democracies 
and not the normal need of normal countries to protect their borders, was what drove Soviet policy. And this meant that, like Nazi Germany, before the start of World War II, the Soviet Union would attempt relentlessly to expand outward until it was stopped. For these historians, force, and only force, was the only thing that Joseph Stalin and the Soviets as a whole understood. And accordingly, these kinds of historians praise presidents like Harry Truman, uh, a president that uh, left-wing historians criticize harshly for standing up to the Soviet Union for drawing a line in the sand. Well, in my view, the Cold War having come to an end, much to my surprise, and ideological passions having uh, subsided somewhat, although I do detect among many leftist historians a distinct sense of disappointment that the Cold War ended the way it did, Uh, it is now quite possible that the question, who caused the Cold War, is less important than the more ideologically neutral question of what caused the Cold War. And the answer to this question, I think it's clear, is that both the legitimate security needs and the philosophical or ideological underpinnings of both the United States and the USSR as nations and also as representatives of systems of belief, communism, capitalism, made the Cold War inevitable, especially in the specific circumstances of the post-World War II years, with Germany defeated, Great Britain and France weakened substantially, and the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the only viable superpowers left in the world. Under these circumstances, it's probable that even had the economic and political systems of these two nations been exactly the same, if they had both been Marxist, if they had both been capitalist democracies, they still would have become rivals. And there still would have been a war of some kind, Cold War or otherwise. So, while historians are always taught to avoid the word inevitable whenever possible, I think it's fair to say that if any two nations were destined to clash, they were the United States and the Soviet Union in 1945. And looking at the Cold War in this way changes the operative question for historians from who caused the Cold War, to the more historically useful question of what happened in the Cold War. And it is to this question we now turn. Now, the Cold War had its immediate origins at the Yalta Conference in February 1945 between FDR, Stalin, and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, uh, whose purpose was to plan the post-World War II world. At Yalta, which is uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, town in the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin demanded influence in Poland and other Eastern European nations on his border. And FDR, in exchange for Stalin's promise to allow free elections uh, 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 in uh, Poland and other nations, uh, and Stalin's promise to eventually enter the war against Japan. In February 1945, uh, uh, the Soviet Union was still fighting Germany uh, and not yet freed up to go fight Japan, which is something that the United States wanted. Uh, uh, They agreed to do this too. Although this agreement was rather, rather vague. Now, Yalta, as seen by many Americans, was a bad bargain for the United States. Why? Well, 
because Stalin promptly broke his promise to allow uh, 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 free elections in Eastern Europe uh, uh, and just establish puppet dictatorships there, uh, uh, as well as in the Soviet-controlled section of, of Germany, uh, which after World War II was divided into four sections, uh, the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And also making the Alta a bad bargain for the United States is the fact that the United States, as it turned out, didn't need Soviet assistance against Japan by the time the Soviet Union was ready to give it, which was August 1945. In fact, the United States dropped their atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, in part to end the war quickly and keep the Soviet Union out of Japan because the United States wanted sole influence in Japan after the war, wanting to avoid the situation, for example, that obtained in Korea, where the Soviets did have influence and where the nation had to be divided like Germany, this time in two, between a North and a South Korea, which still exists to this day. So at Yalta, it turned out the United States gave up something substantial, Eastern Europe, basically, for something it didn't really need, the Soviet Union's help in fighting against Japan. Now, if the United States was disturbed by the consequences of the Yalta Conference, the USSR was disturbed by the United States' possession of the atomic bomb. Joseph Stalin was paranoid, as it turns out, on the subject of the atomic bomb, and perhaps he should have been. He started a crash Soviet program to catch up and build one of his own which achieved success in 1949, thanks partially to the work of Soviet spies in the United States and Great Britain. Uh, the most notable American spy was Julius Rosenberg, who I think I referred to earlier, who was put to death in 1953, along with his wife, uh, for conspiracy to commit espionage by giving atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. A controversial case for many years, but now one we do know uh, with, I think, with almost complete certainty uh, that Rosenberg was a Soviet spy. Not necessarily the best spy, but uh, a Soviet spy. And, of course, in 1949, when the Soviets got the bomb, this, in turn, sparked U.S. paranoia and led to American development of the more powerful hydrogen bomb in 1953 and, inevitably, to an arms race with the Soviet Union that would continue through the 1980s with one side and then the other trying to raise the other as almost in a poker game. Uh, until Ronald Reagan, with his Star Wars missile defense system, which we'll talk about when we talk about the Reagan years, effectively raised the stakes beyond the Soviets' ability to match. Now, this arms buildup on the part of the United States is only one part of its overall strategy for fighting and winning the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And this overall strategy, which uh, would govern the American conduct of the war, of the Cold War, for the next 45 years, can be summed up in one word. Containment. Now, containment was the brainchild of America's foremost Soviet expert of the 1940s, a diplomat named George Kennan, who died recently at the age of, I think, 101 or 102. We should all be so lucky. In 1946, when he was in his 40s, uh, uh, while serving in Moscow, George Kennan was asked by his superiors back in Washington for an analysis of Soviet conduct and ambitions. In other words, explain the Soviet Union to us, George, they basically said. 
Kennan answered with a long telegram of over 10,000 words. A telegram that was so long that it would forevermore be known as the long telegram. It was the long telegram. Now, in the long telegram, Kennan traced the essential precepts of the doctrine of containment of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, Kennan argued, was a relentlessly expansionist state, uh, in part because of its Marxist ideology, but also because of what he saw as traditional Russian nationalism and paranoia. Now note that Russia was only one part, uh, the controlling part, of the Soviet Union, which consisted of many other ethnicities. It was only one part of it. With the breakup of the Soviet Union, some of those other ethnicities and nationalities got their own countries. Now, George Kennan in his long telegram said that the United States must stop Soviet advancement by pushing it back through a variety of means. First, political means, meaning helping governments that were friendly to the U.S., helping your friends. Economic aid, economic aid to friendly countries. Cultural measures, propaganda regarding uh, the uh, American way of life being a better way of life than the Soviet way of life. And also military action, but only as a last resort. Eventually, Kennan predicted in the long telegram, the internal contradictions of the Soviet Union would catch up to it, and it would collapse from within. The economic contradictions of the Soviet Union, he predicted, would catch up to it. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Soviet Union is a state-run economy with no individual initiative. The political contradictions of the Soviet Union, Kennan predicted in the long telegram, would also catch up to it. The Soviet Union is a totalitarian state with no individual freedoms, no freedom of speech or religion, or the press or assembly, no voting. But this collapse through internal contradictions, Kennan predicted, would take a very long time and a lot of patience on the part of the American people. There would be times that the American people would want to give up because no end seemed to be in sight, but Kennan said that they had to persevere. And of course, George Kennan's prescription of long-term containment of communism actually worked in the sense that the Soviet Union did collapse from within at the end of the 1980s. And as I said, we'll talk about that in future sessions of this course. But Kennan's containment theory was vague in one important respect. And this vagueness would come back to haunt America, especially in Vietnam. Now, Kennan said that America must act to contain Soviet expansionism when it directly threatened our vital interests. But what were those vital interests? And more to the point, where were those vital interests? Were they in Europe? Were they in Asia? Were they, were they wherever the Soviet Union tried to expand? Were some areas more important than others? Or were they all the same? And what if there was a Marxist-sponsored expansionism in a country or region, but it wasn't clear whether it was Soviet sponsored. Could there be an independent Marxist insurgency, one that was not sponsored by the Soviet Union or even by China, which in 1949 had also fallen to a communist takeover uh, led by Mao Zedong? But could there be one, a Marxist insurgency, grounded simply in nationalism in one country, 
attempting to liberate one country and not the entire world. Well, this was all left unclear by the long telegram. And though George Kennan later said that he did not mean that the United States should contain all Marxist insurgencies all over the world, especially in Asia, where United States vital interests were not as apparent as they were in, say, Europe. And Kennan later said that he did not mean to imply that every nationalist-based revolutionary movement with Marxist aspects, especially in Asia, I think you see where I'm going here, had to be contained or else United States vital interests would be threatened. This is essentially how American policymakers interpreted Kennan's doctrine of containment. For them, wherever the Soviets made a move, whenever the Soviets made a move, and even when we thought the Soviets were making a move, but we weren't completely sure since the actual move was being made by someone else, America had to strike back had to strike back hard, had to strike back immediately, and strike back with force, or else it would have lost, and especially lost face in the world. And it was this version, perhaps an inaccurate version, of Kennan's containment theory that became official American policy throughout the Cold War. And while it can be said that America won the Cold War, it is not at all clear that America won because of this rather extreme version of containment, and that America could not have won the Cold War with a more limited and less costly, in terms of lives, money, and social dislocation at home, a less costly version of this containment strategy. In any case, this kind of containment would lead the United States inexorably and logically, because it was a logical outgrowth of its reasoning, into an involvement in Vietnam that would strain America's commitment to fighting the Cold War more than any other event in it and come closer to destroying America's social fabric than any event since the Great Depression. But this, of course, lay in the future as America entered the Cold War immediately after World War II. Now, how did America wage the Cold War during this period? Well, there were three major aspects, I think, to American Cold War policy in the late 1940s, and each can be illustrated by a particular policy initiative, given a name, so to speak. The first, the worldwide nature of containment, uh, we've already discussed containment, but it was illustrated by what became known as the Truman Doctrine. Now, in 1947, in order to save the pro-Western but really anti-democratic regime in Greece uh, from pro-Marxist revolutionaries in that country, and this would become a, uh, a, a corollary of United States anti-communist containment policy over the next 40 years, American support of anti-democratic uh, and dictatorial sometimes regimes on the grounds that they were anti-communist. Uh, under these circumstances, uh, Greece's government about to fall, Harry Truman promised massive amounts of military aid to that country. But Truman went farther than just promising to aid Greece. He promised, essentially, to aid any country, anywhere, anytime that was resisting communism. It must be the policy of the United States, Truman declared, to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. This open-end, 
worldwide containment policy would, of course, lead eventually to Vietnam. Now, the second aspect of America's containment policy during the early years of the Cold War was massive economic aid to struggling capitalist democracies, aid so that they could uh, improve the material conditions for their people and thus reduce the attraction of Marxist alternatives in those countries. And this aspect was illustrated by the Marshall Plan, also of 1947, named after its author, the Secretary of State George Marshall. Now, the Marshall Plan was aimed directly at rebuilding the economies of war-devastated nations in Western Europe, especially France, Italy, and West Germany, where there were realistic chances at the time, after World War II, of communist victories, electoral communist victories, I might add, because the Communist Party was legal and strong in those nations. Now, the Marshall Plan poured millions of dollars into these capitalist, or at least capitalist for the moment, uh, economies to make sure they would stay capitalist and stay democratic and stay oriented towards the United States. And also because Marshall realized that America needed other developed capitalist nations as trading partners. They needed someone to trade with. And that was also a motivation for the Marshall Plan. The United States could not survive in a capitalist island in a sea of state-run communist economies. Now, at least in Europe, the strategy of the Marshall Plan worked. Western Europe stayed democratic, and more to the point for American policymakers, stayed anti-communist. And for the next few years, the Marshall Plan helped draw a stark line between the relatively prosperous economies of Western Europe, aligned with the United States, and the economies of the USSR and Eastern Europe, the nations that it controlled. The Soviets uh, refused to participate in the Marshall Plan, even though they were actually, uh, at least officially, offered an opportunity to participate in it. Uh, they considered it a provocation, which of course it was. Their economies, of course, were much less robust, and the Marshall Plan helped draw this stark line between communist and capitalist economies. Ultimately, the revolutions that would occur, thanks in part to the Marshall Plan, would be in communist nations and not capitalist ones. And the third bedrock principle of U.S. containment policy during the formative years of the uh, Cold War was the idea of collective security as illustrated here by the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, in 1949. Now, NATO was an alliance against the Soviet Union, and the USSR had its own alliance system of its own, uh, uh, called the Warsaw Pact, Warsaw-Poland. Uh, uh, that was their version of NATO. Uh, NATO was composed of the United States, Canada, and ten European democracies in which an attack on one was considered atta an attack on all. Collective security, so to speak. The United States, which was the driving force behind this alliance, essentially became the guarantor of the security of the European members of NATO. It was American military power that protected these nations, and the United States was able to keep the NATO, NATO alliance intact for the duration of the Cold War, sometimes just barely, uh, uh, as some NATO members, especially France, West Germany, and Italy, sometimes believed America was being too zealously anti-Soviet on their behalf. 
But NATO lasted well enough uh, into the 1980s to play a major role in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which could not sustain the massive military expenditures that the presence of NATO in Europe required it to make. The United States, incidentally, uh, established similar collective security alliances uh, in other areas of the world during the Cold War, including CETO, S-E-A-T-O, in Southeast Asia, and ANZUS, A-N-Z-U-S, which is Australia and New Zealand, uh, 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 in that part of the world, although obviously with much less success. Vietnam is the obvious example here. And the United Nations itself, of course, was designed as a worldwide collective security system, although the presence of opposed democratic and communist-aligned factions in the UN, of course, uh, uh, prevented that body from always acting in a coherent manner. So, worldwide communist containment, economic support of pro-U.S. capitalist democracy, and collective security alliances with those nations. Although, as I mentioned before, sometimes the U.S. definition of democracy was a pretty loose one. Uh, These constituted the three founding principles of U.S. Cold War policy. And all three would be called into play in June 1950, when the Marxist regime in North Korea launched a military strike across the 38th parallel, the border, uh, with its neighbor, South Korea a pro-U.S. and anti-communist, if not particularly democratic at the time, nation. Now, the United States immediately intervened after this invasion to stop it, officially through the U.N., but basically on its own. The U.N., incidentally, uh, approved the U.S. resolution condemning the North Korean invasion because on the day it came up, uh, the Soviets who could have vetoed it on the Security Council, were boycotting uh, the UN. Uh, That's another example of contingency. Uh, uh, The whole Korean War would have been very different if the Soviets had bothered to show up that day. Uh, uh, Think of of the war in Iraq in terms of uh, UN approval. Uh, uh, And I think you'll see where I'm going. Uh, Contingency once again. Uh, The Soviets were not boycotting because of Korea. They were boycotting because of of something else. Now, here in Korea, you can see the three principles of the American conduct of the Cold War. First, worldwide containment. Uh, Korea was, despite its far-off location, uh, perceived as a direct U.S. security interest. So worldwide containment. Two, collective security. Uh, An attack on one democracy, like uh, 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 South Korea, uh, uh, even if it's not much of a democracy, which it wasn't at the time, uh, uh, is deemed an attack on all, meaning an attack on the United States. So even if the United States isn't directly attacked, they consider themselves attacked because South Korea is attacked, collective security. And finally, economic aid to capitalist or non-communist nations. Uh, although, obviously, uh, North, uh, South Korea is not part of the Marshall Plan because it's in Asia, the United States had nonetheless funneled millions and millions of dollars to develop the South Korean economy uh, uh, in the years before the Korean War and would continue to do so afterwards. Now, militarily, the Korean War was like a violent seesaw. The North Koreans, who were receiving aid from both the USSR and the Communist Chinese, although they were not a satellite state of either, as the U.S. believed, uh, initially almost pushed the South Koreans and the outmanned Americans off the Korean Peninsula entirely. 
until a daring landing and counterattack behind enemy lines, uh, led by U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, turned the tide. And the United States launched an offensive that pushed all the way over the 38th parallel through North Korea and almost to its border with China. China, which was alarmed, uh, and Truman had given MacArthur explicit orders not to bring China directly into the war. Uh, he eventually fired uh, uh, MacArthur over this issue. Uh, China then attacked the United States with its own forces, pushing once again south of the 38th parallel uh, border between uh, uh, North and South Korea until yet another American counterattack under another general, Matthew Ridgway, uh, moved the border at the time of the 1953 ceasefire that ended hostilities basically back to where the war had started at the 38th parallel, where it remains today, a classic stalemate. So, was the Korean War, more or less as I described World War I, essentially a war about nothing then? Well, Harry Truman and his successor in the White House in 1953, Dwight Eisenhower, and American policymakers generally certainly did not think so. They thought the USSR and China had been taught a lesson that the U.S. would go anywhere and do anything to defeat communism, even send troops off to a small nation in Asia that many Americans at the time could not even find on a map, and sustain 33,000 troops killed there, all to prove their point. So, as America entered the 1950s, its Cold War policies were set and irrevocable. And they pointed in the direction of continued confrontation, not just with the USSR and China, but with any force that, in America's view, threatened the cause of anti-communism anywhere in the world. Now, the burdens of these ambitious and perhaps too ambitious policies would point America into a corner in the 1960s from which it could neither advance nor retreat, and ultimately destroy not only its foreign policy anti-communist consensus, but its political and domestic social consensus as well. And we'll get to that when we talk about Vietnam. Now, domestically, at home in the United States, the Cold War policies of containment also exerted a tremendous impact on American politics and society. Anti-communism was the major domestic impulse in the United States from the end of World War II through the mid-1960s. And Harry Truman's 1947 security risk program, under which government employees had to pass muster before loyalty boards, and his creation, Truman's creation in the same year uh, of uh, 1947, of the National Security Council to plan anti-communist foreign policy. We still have that the Department of Defense to coordinate anti-communist foreign policy, and finally the CIA to spy on behalf of anti-communist American foreign policy, were early examples of the impact of anti-communism on American politics and society. And of course, in my next lecture after the midterm, I'll discuss this uh, domestic aspect of anti-communism uh, in more detail, and we'll also have our debate on it. But right now, however, uh, I want to talk about the major issue in American society after World War II, aside from anti-communism. And that issue is the legacy of the New Deal. 
Now, after World War II ended, it quickly became apparent that the American economy would not slide back into depression, that it would keep growing and keep expanding. And even as most Americans breathed a great sigh of relief over this, they began to argue among themselves about the New Deal. Should its system of government regulation of the economy and expanded social welfare programs continue or even expand? Or should those programs be cut back and business be permitted to operate more freely and independently? Well, certainly organized labor and many liberals wanted the New Deal to expand, and they took as their platform Franklin Roosevelt's so-called Second Bill of Rights speech in 1944, where Roosevelt argued that Americans were entitled to, in addition to the procedural rules, the procedural rights guaranteed by the original Bill of Rights, you know, speech, religion, press, to also to certain substantive rights, like the right to a job, the right to food, the right to housing, the right to health care, and the right to a minimum guaranteed income all to be provided by the federal government. Now, if you read through the Constitution of the United States, you never see, or you do not see, any of those rights specifically guaranteed. Now, labor unions and liberals attempted, uh, after the war and after Roosevelt's death in 1945, so we'll never know what he would have done to make, these, uh, make the Second Bill of Rights a reality, uh, they tried to make this program a reality. And... Moreover, again, seeking to expand the scope of the New Deal, uh, these laborites and left leftists and liberals in America argued also for more than government regulation of the economy. They wanted government to run the economy, to plan the economy, not just in consultation with business, but with labor unions as well. Now, while its advocates called this uh, a form of associationalism, which is a word associated with Herbert Hoover. Uh, uh, he had called for this in the 1920s, where government, uh, business, and labor would sit down and work together voluntarily. This is what these advocates, uh, these liberal advocates, wanted in the years after uh, World War II. Uh, their word wasn't associationalism. Their actual word was corporatism. That's the word that they used. However, the critics of this state planning as well as state welfare idea had another less complimentary word for what they wanted. They called it socialism, even communism. And these critics, Republicans, businessmen, conservative Democrats, many from the South, they vowed to fight any extension of the New Deal along these lines and to protect what to them was all about. America was all about the free enterprise system. They wanted to protect that. And thus, liberals and conservatives in the years immediately following World War II framed the argument which, as I said earlier in an earlier lecture, I think is central to understanding American history in its entirety. The argument over what is equality and what is freedom in our society. Liberals after World War II favored federally guaranteed rights to incomes, to jobs, to housing, to health care. They essentially were arguing for an equality that meant roughly equivalent life outcomes for the majority of Americans. The conservatives after World War II who opposed them argued for an equality of opportunity that permitted 
wide disparities in individual life outcomes in the United States, and equal opportunity to become unequal, so to speak. And liberals, who argued for a government-planned economy in which decisions about prices and wages and levels and types of production uh, and marketing strategies were made not by business owners alone, but by government economists and labor leaders as well. They were arguing for a definition of freedom in which business owners were not completely free to run their businesses, to run their property as they saw fit, but had to listen to non-owners, the government and labor union leaders. And the conservatives who argued against this after World War II uh, sought a freedom that included, as they put it, an employer's right to manage, and this became a a mantra for them, the right to manage his business and to make the crucial decisions concerning it uh, 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 on his own, with no centralized government planning. In other words, it's my business, nobody tells me how to operate it. Well, the immediate outcome of this argument, at least for the post-war period, because of course there are no final outcomes to this argument in American life, was, in typical American fashion, a compromise of sorts with a little something for everyone. Although it's fair to say that those who desired an American version of European social welfare states uh, where the government did plan the economy and did provide an array of uh, government, uh, uh, of government services, government-guaranteed social services, were to be disappointed. Because what did happen is that the federal government, instead of directly planning the economy, regulated it generally and indirectly through what is known as fiscal and monetary policy, where interest rates, credit, uh, uh, and money supply is expanded or contracted depending on what government economists thought was best for the economy. This is what happens with the Federal Reserve. This is what happened recently with the Federal Reserve as they uh, lowered interest rates. The nation also committed itself to solve all its economic problems through growth. Growth, which again is a big word for the American economy. The continuous expansion of the American economy, growth. Growth would provide enough material wealth for all Americans, so that the difficult questions about redistributing wealth could be avoided. In other words, the pie is growing for everybody through growth. So you don't have to make these kinds of decisions which could border on socialism. And also, thanks to the Cold War, by 1950, America was essentially on a wartime economic footing. Of course, by 1950, it was actually fighting a war. NSC 68 which is the 1950 government position paper uh, that called for massive arms expenditures to defeat the Soviet Union, which we read for today, uh, predicted correctly that this added military spending would also stimulate economic expansion. And that's what happened. Thanks to this wartime-level spending, America was launched on an unprecedented period of growth, lasting from the end of World War II, actually through World War II, right through to the early 1970s. A period in which growth, or something for everyone, could be substituted for universal social welfare programs and large-scale income redistribution. And 
while America did not institute uh, national health care insurance or a guaranteed minimum income or government-funded full employment, uh, which is all things that liberals uh, wanted them to do, it did in the programs of Harry Truman's Fair Deal, an extension of the New Deal, uh, extend the New Deal's already existing programs and also remove any question that they would uh, become a permanent part of the American political landscape through expanded Social Security programs, uh, a new minimum wage law, massive public housing programs, aid to education, uh, subsidies for agriculture or continued subsidies for agriculture, and an employment act in which the government promised to play some role, but not the major role, in providing jobs for Americans. Of course, that's always going to be falling to the private sector. Harry Truman's Fair Deal steered a middle path between complete free enterprise, which is what a lot of the conservatives wanted, uh, and a planned economy. Businesses could still run their business, but the government uh, uh, supervised national economic policy through the Federal Reserve. And also, the, the uh, Fair Deal steered a middle ground between a European-style social welfare system with universal services for all, and, on the other hand, a sink-or-swim society without a safety net, meaning the federal government and the state governments would provide some but not all benefits to people and rely on private company benefits uh, for the rest. In other words, in other words, where do you get your, your health insurance usually? Uh, uh, you don't usually get it from the government unless in, in today's American society, unless you work for the government. I get my health insurance from Lawrence. You get it usually from your employer. That's not how it is in many countries in Europe. And so the fair deal of Harry Truman set the basic agenda for American domestic policy through the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, and into the 1970s when the growth, that word again, of the American economy stopped and forced Americans, finally, to confront the limits of its largesse. But that would be in the future. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, the American economy was expanding and growing and prosperous, and American society was a prosperous society, with plenty of jobs and plenty of material goods, and an apparently healthy balance between government regulation and private initiative. And yet, at the same time, it was also a profoundly angry, profoundly suspicious uh, uh, society that was at odds with itself. Few periods of American history have been so healthy economically, yet at the same time so unhealthy socially as this period. And next time, which will be Friday after our midterm, we will examine this apparent paradox, paradox of angst amid affluence as we discuss the phenomenon of anti-communism in post-World War II American society.